I'm Dean Newland, and welcome to the Business of Intuition, where I coach, facilitate, train, and speak on the hard science and meaningful experience of intuitive leadership in business, so you can make better decisions, forge real connections, and creatively solve problems to amplify your impact and simplify your life. Welcome to the Business of Intuition. I would like for you to recall the last time you really felt present in the moment, not worrying about the past or planning for the future, but really in the present moment, quiet, just by yourself. And I'd like for you to describe what that really felt like. What condition were you in? And what kind of benefits you experienced? And as you recall that, let me provide you a couple of quotes that might help you along your way. This first one is from a book called Flow, and it goes, happiness is not something that happens. It is not the result of good fortune or random chance. It is not something that money can buy or power command. It does not depend on outside events, but rather on how we interpret them. Happiness is, in fact, a condition that must be prepared for cultivated, and defended privately by each person. People who learn to control their inner experience will be able to determine the quality of their lives, which is as close as any of us can come to being truly happy. Another one comes from a book called Money and the Meaning of Life by Jacob Needleman. And to paraphrase, he basically says, the quality of one's life cannot be measured based on minutes, hours, weeks, months, years, or lifetime. It is based on the amount of time that one spends in the present moment, in those quiet spaces, in that state of flow. But my next two guests are absolutely brilliant in their research and in their insights around that point of our experience where we are quiet with ourselves and be able to describe, one, how to get there, and two, what the benefits are. They've written an absolutely brilliant book called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Lee Mars is a leadership and collaboration consultant with organizations including Harvard, Google, and Ikea. She has led a multi-year program teaching experiential mindsets to multi-generational teams at NASA. Lee is also a longtime student of pioneering researchers and practitioners of the ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. Justin Zorn has served as both a meditation teacher and a senior policymaker in the U.S. Congress. He is a Harvard and Oxford-trained specialist in the economics and psychology of well-being, who has written for The Atlantic, Washington Post, The Guardian, Harvard Business Review, Foreign Policy, Wired, Time, CNN, and others. Lee Mars and Justin Zorn are the business of intuition. Well, uh, good morning, uh, Lee and Justin. I'm so pleased to have the two of you on the business of intuition. And when I saw the title of your book, I just went, drop the mic. I'm already wanting to talk to these two people. The title of the book is called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. I just, that was brilliant because I think it, just as it resonates with, I think, what a lot of people 
intuitively feel is the state of being that we need more of one thing and less of something else. So maybe if I could start off by asking either one of you to sort of define what you mean by silence, define what you mean by noise, and then we'll kind of unpack this a bit. Sure. Who wants to go? <laughs> there was a I'll nice silence it. there, I'll by the way. I love the way you yeah. tired. You want to go? It. Should I go? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, I would say first, think of noise, not just as any and all sound and stimulus, but noise in two words is unwanted distraction. And there are three yeah. different levels to it as we came to explore the meaning of noise. There's the auditory noise, the noise in our ears. There's the informational noise, the unwanted distraction often in our screens. And there's the internal noise, the noise, the unwanted distraction that we produce for ourselves and our own thought. And in the book, in the process of writing this book, we could get into it a little bit more, how we got on this track and got on this process. But in the process, we came to find clear evidence that all three of these kinds of noise in our ears and our screens and in our heads is rising. There's empirical evidence that all of this kind of noise is on the rise in our world. So what is silent? You know, at one level, yes, it's the absence of noise. It's a space where no one is making claims on the consciousness. It's where no one is making interference into our clear perception and intention. And in the book, we explore this, this idea that silence, though, at the deepest level, isn't just the absence of noise. It can also be a presence unto That's itself, pristine tension. <laughs> what would you add to that, Lou? Yeah, I would say that really uncovering those definitions and all of those things was really about following our own intuition in this process. We started with being actually completely despondent about the state of the world. <laughs> so what are we going to do? about these things we care about, this, the world feels crazy to us, it feels like more thinking and talking is not going to get us to the solutions we were looking for. And so we wrote a little article really focusing on auditory noise, that which happens in our ears. We wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that um, made some claims about the noisiness of the world and that maybe turning to silence for strategy, for clear thinking, maybe even trying something like not talking for a day could be a good experiment for all of us. And that article went viral and really, for us, indicated a signal of something to pay attention to, something worthy of our attention. So we backed way up. Justin and I had just met, and we had written, this was our second article we'd written together. And the idea of taking on a book project together is a big one, you know? So we stepped back, thought about what are we doing here? And then we went on ahead and just jumped into some interviews, interviewing neuroscientists and politicians and artists and a man incarcerated on death row and business leaders and a whirling dervish and an Air Force lieutenant colonel, you know, all kinds of folks who were so also really the term silence, like it spoke to you, spoke to them. And we asked them this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? Yeah. And they pointed us towards places beyond that auditory to our ears space, which really led us on a journey of looking at those areas of noise that Justin just described, auditory, informational, and internal, and into these depths of silence, silence that is often experienced in loud environments, but where the internal landscape is pristinely quiet. 
It's interesting you say that. Through saying externally, there could actually be auditory noise that's quite loud, but internally we could have this deep silence. That must Absolutely. almost be like almost like one hand clapping in a way. But <laughs> before we get into this, like, what do you what did you find out in all of these interviews about what people said when they said, "What's the deepest silence you've ever experienced?" What came out? I mean, and what were the benefits of that kind of silence? Yeah, I'll say when we asked them those questions, they pointed us towards these profound moments, maybe like high in the untrampled mountain snow, deep off in the forest, but they also pointed us to births and deaths and moments of awe and moments that could be incredibly loud, like running the perfect line through roaring rapids or the 4 a.m. mark at a dance, all-night dance party, even moments where they're surrounded by thousands of people but there's some shared focus and concentration, perhaps on a moon, a full moon, like this beautiful, beautiful ritual in India. So they pointed us in all different directions and that, but this profound state, this presence where something in them changed. And that is what really said, okay, we're talking about something way bigger, way deeper than just the absence of noise and that which we're experiencing in our ears. It's something that actually changes us. Um, when we get to deeply experience it. So Maybe then, okay, what's the presence? Justin, what do you think? I mean, when you, when, I mean, now we're starting getting into maybe a different level here. Uh -huh. And I'm happy to go down this path with you. Absolutely. So what's the presence? Sure. So one way to look at it is a place of not knowing, a place of letting go. You know, silence is accepting that it's okay to not, fill the space. It's yeah. good to, you know, as I mentioned before, we think of this deep presence of silence as this state where no one is making claims on your consciousness. And in that way, it's akin to the flow state. And in the science chapters, yeah. look a lot at the science flow and what it means to be beyond, to be beyond internal rumination. And we say in this, in this place where nothing is making claims on our consciousness, we can encounter the canvas of creation, the more fundamental basis of reality. And that's really the link here to intuition. It really, for us, started with an intuition that, as Lee mentioned, facing all these challenges, not knowing what to do in the crazy state of the world, how to be productive in a true sense, how to really be helpful in bringing more understanding and clarity to the world. For us, we felt this intuition that the answer was to tune into silence. And we noticed that as we've made more space for silence in our lives, we've been able to tune into this presence that is inextricably linked to intuition. So I was on a spiritual path for about 10 years, and the practice, which I didn't succeed at very well, was two and a half hours of meditation a day. The practice of being in silence, if you will. And I still hold some of that in my life now. I'm, st I'm not on that path right in anymore. But I have to be honest that when I would sit and meditate, intentionally meditate, I found more noise in my head than I had ever anticipated. Like all of the thoughts that were needing attention all of a sudden wanted to scream their attention request, right? And so it's just to be able to stay focused on, you know, 
some key words, a mantra, if you will, was really taught. And so my question is, are people living noisy lives, not just because technology has created it, but we are the authors of that technology, right? Are we creating it as a way of avoiding, as a way of not facing something, our fears, our own responsibility? What's that sort of level of this whole conversation that you guys think about? I think you're onto something really important. And one thing we explore in the book is that, you know, we're living in a society where noise is our most celebrated addiction. And we often sell feelings of stress. We seek feelings of stress and mistake them for feelings of aliveness. And you can even look at this in how we measure progress as a society. You know, GDP, gross domestic product, has some really good benefits and it's important for measuring business cycles. But when we use it as a barometer for how a country is doing, you know, it, it measures the value of a forest only if you chop it down. And likewise, it measures the value of human attention only really if you turn it into advertising dollars or some other kind of quote unquote economically productive activity that's measurable in the economy. So yeah. your question of, you know, well, are we high, are, are we, you know, seeking to replace something? Are we seeking to avoid something, divert ourselves from something? The answer we found in these dozens of interviews with neuroscientists and mystics and people achieving extraordinarily creative things in different spheres, the answer is clearly yes. And we have a chapter in the book on this called Why Silence is Scary. Lee, what what, 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 yeah, well, so Lee, what are you saying more about this in terms of what is scary about silence? Is this the ultimate pre-experience of what we are afraid that death will feel like? Yeah. In fact, we did speak with someone who was working on a book about death and preparing for death. And she joked in there that maybe, you know, we were we were exploring, she was exploring the big death and we were exploring little deaths in a way. And so it is that fear of, we think, of the unknown, as well as the fear of what might become known. Uh What is it we might need to face? You know, where we are also interested, we're not interested in blotting out all sound and stimulus of this world. We're interested in actually being able to discern the true signal, that which needs our attention, and distinguish that from what is just noise and distraction. And just so you don't, like, Justin and I engage in noise and distraction as much as anybody, right? Yeah. We're, we're on this journey with you, but we haven't, you know, we haven't hacked it, we haven't figured it all out. But we do in this, you know, in getting to think of silence again as a, as a place to go, we are also both lapsed meditators. So this is like a lapsed meditator group here. Um, and we have such deep, you know, deep respect for meditation and what it has taught us in our many years of uh, dedication and devotion. But in the interest of making something that really, you know, finding an answer that fit our lives today as parents of young children and the lifestyle we've got, you know, we're not running off to 10-day silent meditation retreats so much anymore. <laughs> and and we have had a lot of years of practice, which we're very value, you know, we, we value deeply. Silence feels more like everybody's, right? This is a non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise. Finding silence in those flow states that Justin pointed us towards, I found I was getting more quiet in my mind by dancing, by uh, teaching dance, conveying things in real time and a flow state with choreography and all these things. That My mind was most quiet then. 
It's most quiet when I move. It's not so conducive to just sitting. It doesn't want to sit still and just be in a quiet environment. That does not serve me as much as is other things. And I think that's true for many. So we wanted something accessible, scalable, and to in a sense, you know, without, you know, not invite that hierarchy of some better way, worse, worse way. What brings you quiet is valuable, whatever that may be. It could be time in your garden. It could be time playing with your children. It could be any number of things. It could be napping, it could be reading. It could be, you know, tearing down a, you know, skiing, ski slope in Japan, like my husband is doing right now. Oh, <laughs> That's his quiet. So yeah, yeah. yeah, there's many infinite routes, let's say, to silence. And our assertion here is that it's really important that we find those, that we find our way back and we remember what that, that brings us. It's almost like the travel industry has built itself on the notion that come and do what you're going to do with us, whatever it might be, and experience silence or experience flow or experience being in the present moment because it's, you're not going to get it at home. So come to Maui, come to Japan skiing, come to, you know, wherever it might be. And that's the experience you get. We actually have an industry, I think, in some ways around attracting people to these things because there's a part of us that really desires it and we need it. Yeah. And my highest hope is that if, you know, if and when we get to do those big adventures that we remember and that we can take that back and bring that back and weave that into our day-to-day micro moments. And that's what this book has, a lot of practical tips for bringing that silence. So it's not, you know, only over there and under these, you know, once a year trips that we can take that we we re-encounter silence. We really need it every day woven throughout the day. And Dean, I think you just hit on a really interesting paradox, which is people are craving these states of being in the present moment, being beyond the noise. But, uh, you know, in the book, we talk about different kinds of silence, different levels of silence. You know, one variety of silence that a lot of people describe, again, is this, this flow state, this deep immersion in the moment where there's no space to get distracted with ruminative thought. And this is one really important silence. You know, but we do look at a more literal kind of practice of being beyond sound and stimulus. And as you were alluding to before, how that could be scary, like when we're really in the places where we're away from our phone, away from the TV, away from people to talk to, you know, what happens to the mind. So we do look at the work of attuning ourselves to that more literal kind of silence as a way to bring about more lasting states of silence in a person internally. Gandhi, for example, even during all the decades he was leading the movement for Indian independence, he spent every Monday not talking. He was always in total silence. Sometimes he would attend events and, and be with other people, but he wouldn't speak a word. And like in our society, that's just anathema to what we do. There was a study uh, some years back at the University of Virginia where university undergrads were given the option to sit in silence alone or without their phones or anything, or they could push a button that would administer a painful electric shock. Initially, all the participants said they would actually pay some money to avoid this painful shock. But in the end, after just 15 minutes in silence, 67% of the men and 25% of the women voluntarily chose to shock themselves rather than be without their phones or be without a mental stimulation. So a lot of what we're exploring is this interplay 
between the different kinds of silence and noise. You know, in a world where we're just soaked in stimulation, auditory noise, informational noise, there's more internal noise. So there's also this benefit of spending time in, you know, away from the sound and stimulus to attune ourselves to silence in order to reduce the amount of internal noise so that we can enjoy life more. So I wonder about this, this idea that we are becoming so habitual in being full of noise. And then I'm wondering if the, the brain chemistry is actually beginning to evolve. Much like a body going to a gym, you start working certain muscles and they get big and other muscles you don't, you know, the noise muscles are getting pretty strong and probably the silent muscles are getting a little flabby, so to speak. I guess though, know, if, if all of this is happening uh, neurologically, what I have found in my own practice is that if I sit and try to meditate to what I said before, the lack of activity is almost creates more noise in my head. So going for a run down near this river that we live next to, it's almost like if I need to write a blog, I go, part of my blog writing process is, you know, do some running. I will go down there and I swear by the time I get to the second bend, I have already got some ideas that come because of the physical activity of watching the babbling brook and the trees and, you know, all that stuff. And so it's becoming a process piece. And I'm wondering, do we need to have an attention? Some of us, some of us can sit, but something for us to do that the byproduct is silence. You know what I mean? That we, we, that if we just simply stop talking and we don't do anything, some of us would go slightly insane, but we need to be doing something like to your point, Lee, you do it through dance and through choreography. Is that part of the, some of the things that people are, are getting success with? Yeah, I think so. I think it's really important to, um, there was a professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, Joshua Smythe, who we asked him about this internal silence and finding it, what makes it, trying to get into on some good definition, good hard science definitions. And he threw up his hands and said, you know, quiet is what people think quiet is. And he pointed us towards a person in his mindfulness studies. He does large-scale mindfulness and stress reduction studies. And noise is just stress, really, right? So, and he said this man found his quiet through chainsaw carving. He took large chunks of wood and, you know, and created these sculptures who, you know, I'd actually love to see what I've thought so much about him over the years. Like, what is he doing? That was his route to quiet. So... In the book, we're really orienting people, you know, the science, there's so much science in here and it's really fascinating stuff. And the science of what's going on in the mind is actually very, very new. It's, you know, there's not an fMRI machine that shows, you know, us when we're shooting hoops or something like that in the big game. You know, we don't have that yet. We, that's why we have all this wonderful data on meditators who are sitting still. It's easier to capture. So. So there's a lot still to be learned in, in terms of what's happening in the brain and how it's somewhere different. But there is an interesting emerging area of science called self-transcendent experiences. That's a cross-disciplinary area of study that is looking at the similarity between flow states and moments of awe. Like say we're looking out over a beautiful ocean or you know on that vacation you described. Mystical experiences which happen spontaneously and are pretty hard to measure right? Mystical experiences when we just, who knows, you know, poof, somehow we're just one with all things. Yeah. Moments that are brought about through meditation in some cases or through mind-expanding substances and um, entheogens and psychedelics and plant medicines. There's some similarities here and there's a whole area of study looking at what is that 
quiet seems to be an, an experience of feeling a diminishment of the egoic self and all the storytelling we're doing internally and an expansion of ourselves to feel connected with something bigger than ourselves. So maybe that's nature for some of us. Maybe it's uh, that whole group of people looking out on the moon that I described a second ago, or who knows what, you know, maybe it's God. Any, you know, it's the meaning making is up to each of us. But in this book, we're asserting that it's worth the time to figure out what those things are, even if they're non-traditional, say ch chainsaw carving or running and you know, and it's worth building some capacity in all these different directions and taking that time for ourselves. Noticing when we're feeling the noise in our bodies, in our relationships, that tension, the emotional content of that, the signals that we're being saturated by noise, but also noticing when we're actually feeling relieved of that and feeling that sense of presence and silence and quiet. So really becoming your own scientific experiment here noticing the data, the variables, changing them, playing and experimenting with that. Fantastic. So let's talk practical. How have you brought your research, your experience of silence into a retreat or into working with a group? You want me to start us off, Justin? I'll sure. Yeah. yeah. I'll start us off by just saying, um, by confessing that an example of a fail, like a lot of times those facilitators and coaches will go into some a big gig and we'll be quite nervous about it and we'll jam pack it with, you know, agenda items and things we're going to do. And I did that to the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center team who were, were working on climate, you know, climate issues. I packed, I was so nervous about that gig and that pilot that I packed it full. And that was a room full of 75% introverts. And by the end of those two uh -huh. days, they looked <laughs> devastated. <laughs> so they're just all, like, just, everybody just looked like they'd been thrown you know, in, in, in a cyclone. So we do that by really thinning out the agenda, by getting super crystal clear yeah. focus on what, why are we here? What are we doing? What is the purpose of this? Get so clear. And you would be surprised how many meetings and summits people have where they don't have that clarity. And that yeah. means a whole lot of running all over the place and a whole lot of extra. So very, you know, really, really refining the agenda, really, really thinning out. So what we're doing is really achieving that or getting to that and creating lots of space, lots of open space for reflection and preparation and integration of all the things, as well as small breakout groups. So we're not all talking in a large group and individual reflection time. And that yeah. is what is generous to introverts and mixed groups. It's what's generous to all of us because we all need it, to be honest, to give us time, you know, for all that, all that engagement, especially now I feel like we're really out of touch with that, all of that um, engagement. It defaults us to conventional thinking and the silence and space really creates space for innovation uh. and novel thinking. That's just to start us off. Just a quick thing before Justin, you, you, have you guys uh, checked out the book called Immersion by Paul Zak? I don't know it, that book. No. Yeah. So no, I don't think so. So Paul, I just had him on the show about a week ago, and he's created some other industries of science, one called neuromarketing. I think when that was neuromanagement, he had, I don't know, a decade or two of, of neurological studies about trying to figure out what creates engagement from a brain perspective, and he would mm -hmm. supplant the word engagement with immersion, they basically are somewhat similar. And so he's been able to sort of track 
what is going on with our hormones that creates the brain to be able to be engaged. And so we had this great conversation. He's even got a way to be able to measure engagement levels real time by the use of smartwatch, smartphones and so forth, smartwatches and Fitbits, because they can, through the algorithmic process, determine is this person engaged right now in this person's presentation or not? And then you then can track back to what was I saying during that time by which caused a person to be engaged. So it's a really fascinating process. And he's uh, one of the top cited scientists right now. And so one of the things we talked about, which is very much what I was hearing from you, was that we just pack so much into these things and that the brain gets tired and we need to be able to either create a break or create a different modality of delivery every 20 minutes because that's about as far as we can hold our attention. Right. And right. so this just sounds familiar. And you also make me think about, I'm sure you've read the book Flow. Mm-hmm. By, yes. Is it Mihai Chichai? Mihai Chichai, Mihai, yeah. It's really hard to remember how to pronounce yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> a fascinating book. So anybody who's interested in this topic, I would recommend that book as well. So Justin, what other things have you been able to do in facilitations or even in coaching conversations to be able to help people or, or guide them or encourage them towards this, this more silent, presence. You know, a big part of our work, Gene, and this is, um, and I know this is related to the work that you do with organizations and staying on track with mission, is thinking about culture and thinking particularly about the ways that culture facilitates, enables, you know, leads toward distraction or leads toward this kind of state of pristine attention. So look in the book at how in 1787 in the Constitutional Convention, the delegates there who were writing the U.S. Constitution had a giant mound of dirt built outside the convention hall so that they could do deep work together and deep thinking. They didn't want to be distracted. And we fast forward some, you know, 200 plus years to the time when I was working on Capitol Hill. I was a legislative director for a few members of Congress, and I co-founded, helped to lead a uh, mindfulness program that was a first-of-its-kind program and would teach sessions there. And that experience was so radically different from what we knew on Capitol Hill to be the culture and the norm, which in turn was so radically different from how it was at the Constitutional Convention. You know, phones beeping constantly on in open plan offices, you know, no expectation that people could be immersed, to use the term you were just using, immersion in deep thinking. There was no value of this kind of pristine attention. So one thing we explore in the book really is how to notice noise and tune into silence as and individuals finding these little pockets in our lives. We offer about a dozen specific practices for individuals to do this, more practices on how individuals could do this in more, in, uh, more deeply immersive ways over time rather than just day to day. But then we look about, at teams and organizations. And what teams and organizations could do to become more aware of the noise and distraction that permeates a culture and to design experiments, little interventions and how we shift that. So some of the work we did on Capitol Hill during my time there, you know, was one little intervention creating this, what they called the quiet time caucus, where we would have a a group that, that grew to be pretty substantial, would just sit together in silence, a little bit of meditation instruction. But really, what was radical about that experience was us all sitting together, you know, in our business suits and these fancy government buildings, doing nothing, 
being quiet, <laughs> tuning into the side. So cool. What a great, ex- I would love to have watched that whole process. Yeah. Were you in the room at the time when this was happening or were you? Well, I was teaching staff members meditation. So I was, so okay. I was working with groups of staff. We had some members of Congress who would participate. There were a few, but um, yeah, we had senior committee staff and, and attorneys who worked on Capitol Hill. And so, you know, in the book, we look at a range of different practices for what it could mean for an organization to actually shift the culture, to actually start to do something different. We look at a Japanese aesthetic principle, an ancient Japanese aesthetic principle, ma, which ma. means empty space, the space in between notes of music, Boom. the space in between words and among friends and conversation. It's also the negative space in Japanese artwork and Ikebana flower arranging. And we think of this word ma, one of the definitions is pure potentiality Boom. within that space that we often perceive as empty or negative space. So we look at the idea, what would it mean to bring a little bit more ma to the job? And how we, could de- how we could design a conference, how we could design the day, how we could bring ma into brainstorming processes. So it's not just the tyranny of the fastest and loudest, but then there's actually an opportunity for space for people to meet together have an experience together, be in pristine attention together, so that deeper wisdom could bubble up. There's a, a documentary that I can't find anymore, but I was wondering if you've ever seen it. It's called Ensei, I-N-S-A-E-I. It's a gal who used to work for the UN, and she had experienced some of the worst characteristics of the human planet, human beings, and was just so depressed by what she saw. So she, she partnered up with a uh, filmmaker and they created a documentary about intuition, essentially. And uh, they fell upon a performance artist, I can't remember her name, and she had one of the most, I think, popular exhibitions over at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art in New York City, where all she would do would be, she'd sit in a chair and somebody would sit across where Lee is now shaking her head, knowing what I'm talking about. Yeah. And she would just listen. She would just listen. And of course, people were so captivated by the space, the quiet of being in presence with somebody else listening. And they did brain, they did brain uh, research on her, and she had just incredible you know, brain waves that were kind of unbelievably advanced. But that particular that show, I think, was the most important or the most popular one in their history. And so I took that idea, and I thought, well, what if we did that with the group? And so although they really screamed... <laughs> They kicked and screamed a little bit, but I had them just sit people knee to knee, just being quiet and looking at each other for about a minute, not two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes like she did, but just for two minutes. And man, it changed the energy. And okay. um, it became sort of a love-hate thing, like, oh, geez, do you don't let us do that again. But later on, in a particular event that I did, we were doing something else and it was maybe some sort of like a, an improv thing. And the thing that this smaller team was to present was their version of whatever the challenge was. And all they did is they turned their chairs to their audio and just listened and just looked at it. <laughs> and everybody else realized what they were doing. And then people would pull their chair up and come into the space with them. And then for like three or four or five minutes, we had the entire team just being present with each other. And that silence was there. And it just gave you goosebumps. And the leader of the team said that was the most important thing we've ever done in our culture. Mm. Just so cool. So I've just, I've said, said, 
fan of what you guys are about. What have you noticed in your clients in terms of the outcomes or the responses they've gotten by the work that you've been doing? What have they told you later? Yeah. Well, in working with chemists who are working to remove toxic chemicals from our homes and our products, the, the situation, so I've been working with them for about a decade and Justin's uh, partnered with me on some of this work, so he'll, he'll, he can jump in. But the, the idea is that what they, the problem that they were struggling with is that there are 40,000 or so largely unregulated chemicals in our products that make their way into our homes and our environment. And when you ban one chemical, you quickly get the sort of the kissing cousin that one molecule is, you know, flip different, and that one is not banned. So that's Damn. the whack-a-mole problem. That, so advocacy groups were putting all kinds of effort. I mean, this could take months and years to ban one chemical, say B BPA, and yeah. then you would get BFA, just as bad or potentially worse, a regrettable substitute. So this is a losing strategy. It was scientists without funding. People yeah. were having to prove harm instead of prove a chemical safe. That's the way the whole system was set up. So we went deep into the woods for four days to really contemplate, like, how are we going to get on this? You know, how are we going to get a different leverage point on this problem to solve this issue? Because our world is flooded with these chemicals and much of which we don't even know the impacts. And some of we do, and we still don't have them out of our system. So in this four days, they came up with this strategy of classifying chemicals, these 40,000 into big families of chemicals, similar, you know, six, six classes. So to use a class concept, that yeah. came in, the, in on hikes, those hikes and walks and talks and even cocktail hours, which we had at night and dance parties and poetry readings and different, you know, different things. That's where that, and then we built on that for the last decade to refine, refine, refine. That concept, the class concept, is now adopted bipartisanly. It's 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 a common, you know, wow. accepted. There there's joint legislation going on um, to ban PFAS and different other harmful chemicals. Some of your listeners may have heard of, but that would never have happened. First off, if these groups, these were cross sector groups who weren't talking to one another, if they never convened, and if we hadn't done that in an, in a different environment. So that's what they tell us is that this is, you know, so now more and more. Now, those folks were just as reticent as yours to sit in silence or to have an abbreviated PowerPoint, say, I limit them to 12 minutes. And I am a taskmaster about that, 12 minutes. And then the rest is about really contemplating, you know, you, uh, this is not, you're not going to drown in PowerPoints and data. That's uh, not what we're doing here at this conference, you know. Right. So, you know. Make it so that people can understand and work together on this. And so we've been doing that for years. So the proof of concept is what makes people more and more willing to go into those awkward silences and, you know, step away from their Wi-Fi and their, you know, their email and to do things differently. Um, you know, we just build that capacity over Why time. Why 12 minutes, by the way? Oh, we were just, I just kind of went with that, a little bit of a lightning talk, a little, a little okay. shorter than TED Talks, kind of just. Okay. I was that. wondering yeah. if there's something specific about 12 versus 10 or 15, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, what about you? Any, um, anything that you've heard of regarding the benefits of this work from the clients you've worked with? You know, in essence, we really just bring forward a simple message that there is productive, creative power in taking a break from one of life's most basic responsibilities which is having to think of what to say. 
Yeah. So in the work, we're encouraging people as a part of their creative process to rest those mental flexes, you know, that have to habitually protect the point of view or protect the reputation, you know, or promote an agenda. So this is something that, you know, we, we have really tried to integrate in a variety of ways into our work. Um, you know, this just got featured as uh, one of the best management tips of 2022 in Harvard Business Review, this idea of simply tuning into silence within meetings and, and creative about ways to do this. So a big part of what we're doing really as well is thinking about how to turn people toward an experimental mindset to notice what the silence actually feels like, like Lee was talking about a little while ago, that kind of contracted, constricted feeling of there being silence in the, in the mind, in the nervous system, or that expanded open feeling, and you know, up really in a place beyond the noise in the nervous system. You pointed us, Dean, when you talked about resonance, in a sense, what we're helping people get attuned to is the resonance for them. Yeah. So they'll start to understand, like, oh, we're on the right path. That's the right language. Yes, that's the way to say it. That's the way to, you know, for us to move forward. Because when we're completely saturated by noise, we cannot receive those signals very clearly. And we just sort of, you know, ping around in all these different directions. Another thing, in addition to these creative moments Justin's describing, are the difficult moments of conflict. If we find ourselves in really yeah. heated conflict, silence can be an incredible, you know, I don't want to call it quite a tool, but an incredible thing to bring in, to invite in, to just pause. We learned this from the Quakers. So when they're having a difficult, difficult conversation, the clerk will call for silence. So everyone just sits for a bit. The idea there, the person we spoke with talked about, is really to reorient to the purpose of this meeting, the why we're here, and to get to pull back from that place of being positional and rigid and yeah. really connect to why is it important to resolve this? Why is it important to move forward without blame and without that rigidity? That in those environments, we feel things soften. We feel some people, somebody who maybe hasn't spoken that much come in with a great solution, a, just a, a path forward. So silence is really, really an incredible assistance for all kinds of situations, especially when we find ourselves in that habit energy or even in heated conflict. It's funny you mentioned that. This is, the timing is just great because my wife and I were talking about a situation with some other people that felt like conflict, you know, and the idea was, all right, well, we should do something about it. You know, we should be, be engaged with them. There is this trigger that, that I think a lot of us feel that when conflict happens, we have to do something. It's almost like a flock to a moth to a flame, like, eh, let's defend, let's attack. Let's, we've been wrong. We got to do something. And, and I just thought, no, we got to just let this one sit. You know, we got to just pull back and reassess the, and think about it. Just great, great ideas here in UP2. I could speak and talk with you for the next two hours, um, but I, I also want to honor your time. How can uh, our listeners follow you, connect to you, talk a little bit about the book, where it's located, you know, those sort of things? Sure. Thank you so much for having us, team. By the way, this is a really wonderful conversation. Agreed. We could talk so much <laughs> more business ideas and the personal practices. Oh, for sure. The book, as you mentioned, is Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. 
And it's available wherever books are sold on Amazon, bookshop.org, local bookstores. We really particularly love the Audible version, which is read by Prentiss Oniyemi, who's a wonderful reader. And, uh, you know, just keeping on brand, neither of us are really super active on social media. <laughs> you can find us on LinkedIn. You can. Yeah. Oh, a, you, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I think I found you this morning. Yeah. 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 And our shared yeah. site where you could find some of our writings is our, our firm where we do strategy and communications work, astreastrategies.com. That's okay. dot -E -E com, And you could find some of our writings and some other interviews there. Yeah, the articles that Justin mentioned in Harvard Business Review around a culture of organizational silence, our initial article on a bunch of things by uh, McKinsey and company and others uh, featuring different work for people who want to know more. Wonderful. Real treat. Great way to start the day. Thank you, too, very, very much. Thank you so much, Thanks, Steve. Steve. That. Take care. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to The Business of Intuition. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dean or Mission Facilitators Leadership, go to mfileadership.com. That's mfileadership.com.